week, we have another forum speaker um, from Washington Interfaith Network, Sidra Siddiqui, who is going to speak with us as part of their partnership with Interfaith Power and Light and their Climate in the Pulpits Initiative. Um, and it, she will be talking particularly about efforts in DC and Maryland to electrify homes of low and middle income households, in particular the Healthy Homes Act, which is up for action in the DC Council in November. And of course, electrifying our homes is one of the steps we can take to lower our greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so that's a little bit about me. Um, Joshua, do you want to do an opening prayer and then I can introduce Dr. Mormon? I would love to. Okay. And if any of you are interested in the Environment Committee and getting involved, just let me know. God be with you. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for this morning and uh, for this time to breathe deep pray and think, reflect, meditate on the world that you have created and our responsibilities to, to one another. We thank you for the beauty of the earth. Pray that you compel us to action to protect it, to protect the plants and animals, to protect the children that will inherit this earth. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. Hold on. Um, Rosemary also has a prayer. Go ahead, Rosie. Uh, thank you for the apples and the rain. Amen. Thank you for the apples and the rain. Amen. She's going to go to Sunday school, and then I'm coming right back. Excuse me. Thank you, Joshua. Um, so today we're going to hear from um, Reverend Dr. Jessica Mormon. She is a climate scientist and pastor, a co-founder of the Grace Capital City Church in DuPont Circle. She is also recently the president and CEO of the Evangelical Environmental Network. Um, she has a PhD in Earth and Atmospheric Sciences from Georgia Tech. Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, she has held multiple research positions at the University of Michigan and the Smithsonian. Um, she's a regular speaker about climate change, places like on CNN. She's been featured in the Washington Post. And I'm really excited to hear from her today. Um, I hope you are too. I hope you have your questions ready. Um, but we're going to hear from her about how her faith and her impressive scientific um, credentials and expertise uh, play into her work at the environmental, uh, in Evangelical Environmental Network on climate justice and, and her thoughts on how Christians can contribute to climate solutions. So thank you very much, Dr. Mormon. Thank you. 
I asked God, I said, God, what would you have me do? I want to join you in ministry. What would you have me do? And I learned that this is a dangerous prayer to pray because you never know what God's going to say. And he kept on saying, Jessica, go study geology. Go study the earth sciences. And I found myself with a real wrestle and crisis on my hands. One, I didn't know how geology and ministry fit together. And also, just to be honest, I wasn't sure if I could be a scientist and a Christian. Um, I didn't see how those two fit together. But God was so gracious. He put the right person in my path at the right time. And so uh, the summer before going off to college and declaring what my major was going to be, I was on a mission trip with my church. And our, our mission leader um, asked me the question that every rising college freshman gets, what are you going to do in college? And I just spill my guts to him, share with him this big wrestle that God is calling me into ministry and he's saying going to geology, I don't think I can do this. And he listened so patiently and graciously. And after I'd kind of finished my spiel, he was like, Jessica, don't you know I'm a geologist? I had no idea. And again, God in his goodness had orchestrated that conversation and it felt like it gave me the permission that I felt like I needed to, obedi to be obedient to where he was calling me. And so with that courage, now I decided I, when I got to college, I declared that I was a geology major. I still didn't know how that fit with ministry, but I just knew I needed to be obedient and follow God one step at a time. And again, in God's graciousness, he didn't keep me waiting too long either. It was in a um, freshman geology class when we were learning about how God's creation contains clues about what climate was like in the past. Now we can use the rock record to figure out Earth's climate history that um, uh, what I can only say the Holy Spirit broke through in, in science class and spoke to me. Um, if we go to the next slide, um, and one more. Uh, what the Spirit put in my heart um, in that moment was Matthew 22, Jesus' greatest commandment to us, where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is love your neighbor like yourself. So we can take the first one, love your Lord, your God, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Um, Karen, if we'll go to the next slide. We know, this is a quote from Billy Graham. I love this. He says, we know that God created the world and it belongs to him, not us, Psalm, as we see in Psalm 24. Because of this, we are only stewards and trustees of God's creation. We aren't to abuse or neglect it. This is a way that we show God our devotion and our worship and our love by taking seriously the assignment he's put in our hands. Again, this assignment is given to us in the first book of the Bible. God says, let us make human beings in our image, making them reflect our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and yes, the earth itself. And if we, we take this and look at um, what it really means, and Karen, you can go to the next one, even looking at what does it mean to be human? What is our identity? This is a really 
complex question, but what this Genesis 126 gives us uh, one slice of that, of what is it? It's also being our identity of followers of Christ and children of God as being caretakers of God's creation. Go to the next one. And then the second part of the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. I had heard about climate change as an 18-year-old, um, and I'd also heard how it impacts the most vulnerable first and worst, and it was in that moment that it really broke through of making that connection of how, by acting on climate, addressing climate change is ministry. It's helping serve and protect the most vulnerable among us, the very people who Jesus calls us to serve. And so that set the trajectory for the rest of my life. I was like, okay, I'm gonna study, I'm gonna become a climate scientist, I'm gonna study past climate change, and that led me to Georgia Tech and every which way until really this moment that I'm standing here in front of you, of that ministry, how acting on climate is central to our ministry to serve God's people. And we even see um, from the U.S. Climate and Health Assessment um, from a few years ago, this is how they put it, climate change most severely impacts the most vulnerable in society, children, our seniors, pregnant people, the poor, people of color, and many others. Again, the very vulnerable, the most overlooked in society who Jesus specifically calls us to serve and give special care, most impacted by climate. And so we see that creation care and acting on climate, this truly is a matter of life. A healthy environment is ne a necessary ingredient for the flourishing of human life, as well as the rest of creation. And so what I found and is that creation care, this isn't some radical new idea either that we're tacking on to the church. No, this is rediscovering our roots. This is rediscovering and reclaiming something that's been very central to the church for millennia. We could look back to theologians, both Catholic as well as Protestant, who teach on this. It's only been something that recently that we've kind of lost that connection. We actually see in scripture and theology and church history that caring for God's creation well is foundational to our Christian faith. And I'll just say, when it comes to science, for me as a scientist and a Christian, I simply see it as studying God's creation and getting to discover an even greater picture of God's magnificence as we look to uh, understanding his creation, something that he has made. And so one thing that um, I'd love to look at, what is creation telling us as we are studying it through the tools of science? And as the next slide shows, when we look at, this is a, um, a, a graph of global average temperatures over the last 100 plus years, starting back in 1880. And this graph, you may be familiar with it, but it's showing us how temperature has changed over that time period if you were to take all of the temperature measurements from across the globe and average them together. It's showing us this graph where we see um, this rise towards warmer and warmer temperatures, especially over the 20th century and beyond. And we see that uh, according to the baseline um, reference temperature, we've increased 
one degree C or about 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit over that reference temperature of what's been a fairly stable temperature um, for the last uh, several thousand years. One question I often get asked with this though is, well, one degree, two degrees change. We've seen, even just since we've been sitting here, a bigger change in temperature than that. And what's the big deal? What's the big deal about this? And that's because we're looking at global average temperatures here. But we don't live in the global average world, do we? We, we live in the day-to-day -day in the extremes, and so what we find is actually when we have a small change in the average, global average temperature, this means big changes in the extremes in the day-to-day -day weather that we experience. It's pushing us towards a more extreme new normal, kind of uh, liking it to our body temperature. Uh, but when we have a small change in our body temperature, when we have a fever, that can cause big changes, big harm, um, and can be very deadly. Um, same with our climate. We essentially, our world is having a fever right now to very deadly effects as we head into this new normal of more extreme heat and more extreme weather. And so I wanna dig into this and show what this looks like. Um, and uh, one thing that I love, um, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a fellow evangelical Christian and climate scientist, and I'm so excited to hear that you all are reading her book um, in this season. Um, she puts it this way of, well, why do we care about this change in temperature in climate change? And she says, the only reason we care about it is because it already affects everything we care about today. Let's look at some of those things. We just need to make the connections. Many of the things that we care about in our, personally in our own lives, whether that's our family, our economic well-being, the health and safety of our, our loved ones, or more globally as the church, issues that we care about, poverty, war, hunger, human trafficking, racial justice. There's a connection between climate and each of these things, because the truth is, is that climate change in an unhealthy environment, it harms the people and the places and the problems that we are called to serve in ministry. Let's dig into this a little bit more, and I wanna look at extreme heat. And the reason I wanna look at extreme heat is because actually when we look at um, uh, statistics from NOAA, they find that it's extreme heat and heat waves that have caused more deaths than any other natural disaster over the last 30 years, which may seem a bit surprising because we don't often hear about this in the news. It's one of these silent killers. We can look at the statistics. If we look worldwide, we find that five million deaths occur each year across the globe because of heat stress and heat illness from extreme heat. Here in the U.S., we're not immune. 12,000 heat-related deaths each year. And if we continue on this path of continuing to emit greenhouse gases unabated from using carbon-rich energy sources and not capturing those emissions or switching to clean energy, if we continue on on this path by the year 2100, it's estimated that 110 Americans will suffer heat-related deaths by the year 2100. And for myself as a mother um, of young children, 
2100, the, that 2100 world, it's not that far off. If they live a normal lifespan, they're going to see the 2100 world. This is something that when I look at this, it says, we've got to take action now. We've got to prevent this. And the good news is, is that we can. We can. Um, if we go to the next slide, even just looking at this um, uh, in, for the state of Maryland, this is the same kind of trend if we look at Virginia's. Unfortunately, they didn't have a map for D.C. itself, but again, the trend is the same. What we find is this is a graph of yearly heat-related deaths by 2100 based on what we do. And we find if, again, if we don't do anything, we are looking at that 110 um, uh, thousand deaths, but if we start to make a change, it has a big impact on protecting the health and safety and lives of our loved ones and our neighbors. That gives me hope that that 2100 world isn't what we have to settle for. We also find when we look at climate and pollution that everyone is impacted, but again, not equally. And picking up that theme again, those who are most impacted include our children, older adults, low-income communities, and communities of color. Uh, heat is part of this. We can look a little deeper. When we look at the climate change harms and pollution harms to the health of children, we find before our kids even take their first breath, they can be impacted by climate change in an unhealthy world, whether that's poor pregnancy outcomes, like low birth weight and preterm delivery, even stillbirth because of extreme heat. Or when it comes to pollution of uh, mothers breathing in polluted air, that impacts and gets down to the child as well and can again uh, cause increased risk for low birth weights and neonatal death. Our young children, our infants and, and young children are also physiologically um, more susceptible to heat um, just because their bodies can't regulate temperature as well. And then going into uh, childhood and adolescence of um, uh, young kids are more like more susceptible to asthma attacks from breathing in polluted air, polluted with soot and ozone. Um, that's also coming from fossil fuel sources. Um, and then also when it comes to heat, our older kids, they're outside, they're playing on the playground, they're um, uh, student athletes, they're more exposed to extreme heat conditions, putting them at more risk. We go to the next slide. Others who are more at risk for extreme heat, again, adults over 65, people with pre-existing medical conditions, and those without access to air conditioning. That includes our low-income neighbors, people of color, people without housing, outdoor workers, too, more at risk for extreme heat effects. And this is something that we saw um, back in 2021, and I could even update this slide for the extreme heat we experienced this summer um, across uh, the Southwest. But in 2021, there was, if you recall, there was this heat dome that sat over the Pacific Northwest, over Washington and Oregon and British Columbia. And it ended up being one of the deadliest weather events in Washington history, same for British Columbia. They attributed 1,400 excess deaths to this heat event that sat, extreme heat that sat over the area for weeks. My fellow scientists who do what's called the state-of-the-art science called attribution science of trying to 
figure out how much did climate change make a certain weather event worse. They found that this weather event, this heat dome, was a once in millennia weather event, and it was made 150 times more likely because of climate change. Something that should only happen once in a millennia was now 150 times more likely. And um, if you look at who was most impacted um, and uh, among those who um, tragically lost their lives, it was often seniors without air conditioning. And again, this just isn't right. I want to show you an example from our own hometown here in DC um, of looking at extreme heat, how that affects our city and our different neighborhoods. This was a, um, a study that I participated in while I was at the Smithsonian of where we mapped, did a, a local heat map of our city to see what it was like in different neighborhoods of the city during a heat wave. And what you see in the green areas um, are experiencing about 85 degrees during this heat wave, but then we find that it's not, the exposure is not equal across the city. There's a 15 degree difference during one heat event in our city where the areas in red were experiencing 15 degrees hotter, over 100 degrees heat. So there's a big difference based on where you lived of how you experienced that heat wave. We wanted to look at which neighborhoods were most impacted. And we found that it was hotter in the lower income neighborhoods of town. And then we also found that it was hotter in communities of color, especially in Ward 7 and 8. Um, and on the east side of the town, um, we saw both an income and racial disparity in who was most exposed to extreme heat. Um, and what we found was this isn't something that's just here in our city. This same uh, uh, trend is seen in cities across America, and this is due to the legacy of unjust housing practices like redlining that's led to the disinvestment in these communities. We also find for pollution that race is the most significant predictor of a person living near contaminated air, water, and soil here in the U.S. And again, as, as people of faith and followers of Christ, our hearts should just cry out, this isn't fair, this isn't right. And so this is why the Defense Department calls climate change a threat multiplier. It makes bad situations already even worse. But whenever I look at climate solutions, I see that they are benefit multipliers. They have the opportunity to flip the script and do the reverse. And so when we think about the things that we care about, yes, climate change has a negative impact on all of these things, but then whenever we engage in the solutions, we have the opportunity to make all of these things better. That's why the Lancet um, Premier Medical Journal calls tackling climate change the greatest opportunity on hand for global health. And that's, as we look at, the reason for that is that when we look at the common sources for both pollution and climate change, they're the same. It's those emissions. I want to say energy itself is not bad, but it's the emissions of pollution and heat-trapping gases. If we can get rid of those, those are both climate solutions and pollution solutions, clean air, clean water. And that's why we at EEN, the Evangelical Environmental Network, we look at, the, at climate solutions as win-win-wins. 
It's the opportunity to defend life and health, to protect God's creation, and also to create new jobs and careers in the clean economy. This is an incredible time for innovation as well. I just wanna quickly go through some of these solutions. So I didn't tell you what was fully the reason uh, for why the map looks like that. It's because of tree cover and where trees were planted decades ago, providing that life-saving shade. Um, the tree cover itself can lower temperatures by up to 10 degrees Fahrenheit at the street level. It's also helping draw down carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere, taking it back and putting it into the ground where it needs to be. Also incredible health benefits, again, of reducing that risk for heat illness. Also cost savings um, of reducing heating bills because it's not so hot, but then also it's a part of restorative justice of re finally investing and bringing bits of God's creation back to communities that weren't invested in in the um, beginning. We also see that it, um, bringing, it brings God's creation right into our homes, which leads to better overall physical, mental, and spiritual health, um, which I think is a real important thing to be amongst God's creation. Um, and if we look at the macro side, um, research shows that simply by protecting God's creation or doing natural climate solutions like reforestation, um, sustainable agriculture, protecting our wetlands, that can get us 37% towards our emission reduction goals. This is a really important solution of simply protecting God's creation. Another um, uh, heat solution, another incredible solution, and I'm glad you're going to have a lot more time at uh, next Sunday's forum to go into this connection, but home energy efficiency. Um, it helps keep homes cool more effectively, as well as cutting carbon emissions because you don't have to use as much energy because when you weatherize your home, you're really getting your bang for your buck. But then also, um, home energy efficiency weatherization um, has other important co-benefits like cost savings. So if we look at what's called the home energy burden, which is the percentage of one's income that's spent on energy costs, look at that by poverty levels. Again, it's the lowest income families that are putting more of their paychecks towards their energy bills. And by making our homes more energy efficient, that cuts down on that energy burden and puts less pressure on our low-income neighbors. And it can even lower the risk of eviction as well. Um, and then it has incredible health benefits. This was a study by Oak Ridge National Lab of looking at uh, the health cost savings per weatherized home. And they found that on average, for each weatherized unit, the family saved $14,000 in health costs. This was um, as the reduction of indoor air pollution meant less trips to the hospital because of asthma, less um, school days missed, and that means also for parents, less work days missed. And so incredible benefits, and so I'm so excited you guys are gonna hear more about the Healthy Home Acts next week and dive deeper into that. Um, 
And so just as we wrap up, um, oh, I'll just say, there's also, because of the bipartisan infrastructure law that was passed two years ago, there's now more resources to begin to do that low, uh, energy efficiency weatherization of low-income housing. Um, there's a lot more resources at hands to get the job done. And then lastly, I just want to say in terms of solutions, simply lifting your voice, talking about it, doing what you were doing here at St. Columbus, um, of talking about the connection um, of why this matters to you. Because the truth is, is we do have high rates of Americans who accept that climate change is happening now, it's bad and it's because of us. But not very, there's less, only 35% of us are actually talking about it. Just talking about it is an incredible solution. And that's something at um, EN that, and also some uh, of the many of the other organizations that you'll be hearing from during this season of creation are really focused on helping you lift your voice, whether that's talking with your friends and family, you're already doing this, engaging your church of having these conversations, writing to your local newspaper, sharing on social media, and meeting with your elected officials. And so that's something at EEN. Um, we've helped over five million Christians advocate for clean air, clean water, and a safe climate. Um, getting in contact as constituents with their members of Congress and the administration. And I just wanna share with you lastly, just one success story from this. And so um, re last summer, um, was passed um, what was called the Inflation Reduction Act, which you may be uh, familiar with. This was a nearly $370 billion investment in climate and clean energy provisions. Um, across the board, lots of different solutions. But um, what this has done, so if we look at this graph, which is our um, national US net greenhouse gas emissions, um, we've actually been reducing our national emissions since 2007. This is because of the switch from coal to natural gas. Um, but we are now on track to um, begin to meet our national carbon reduction goals, especially because of this new legislation. And um, I'll just, uh, a headline, um, the National Academies just came out with a report this week that affirms this, that um, with this new legislation, we're on track. There's still so much that we need to do. We need to make sure this gets implemented well, and there's other steps we still need to take. But this is good news, and this was because folks like yourself lifted their voices and asked for, we need to have these solutions now. And so I just wanna leave you with a few closing thoughts. Um, First, uh, that um, the truth is also, we're not helpless and we're not hopeless. We've got a, we're making progress and there's still things that we can do. And especially as I look at John 10, 10, when Jesus says this his mission was to come so that we all may have life and have it abundantly. Acting on climate, engaging in creation care, this is a part of that. And so I just wanna leave you with a closing question. When we join with God, who is in the restoration business, when we join with him and we act together, what kind of healthy future can we create? Thank you.
Thank you very much. There we go. Dr. Mormon, Dwayne, do you want to come up and ask? Or do you want me to hand the mic to you? What's easiest? Okay. I'm just going to leave the mic here. So those of you with questions, come ahead, come on and line up. Thank you very much. So I was struck by one of your early slides where I think it was you were showing the increased death rate due to climate change by state. And it was kind of counterintuitive because the most increases were up north and two of the least increases, one was in Texas and one was in Florida. And so I thought Texas, well, maybe it's a younger population, but you couldn't say that about Florida. So could you sort of comment a little bit on why it's so up north? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And uh, this is specifically related to extreme heat. And this gets to a sense of risk and vulnerability. And so as you think about in this and how our infrastructure, how our status quo is set. And so what you'll find when it comes to extreme heat, our southern states are more able to cope with extreme heat because so many units are air conditioned um, and folks are more used to those higher heat temperatures. When you go up north, less able, ours just in Michigan, and not as many homes are either weatherized or um, uh, ready for extreme heat. They're ready for extreme cold, <laughs> but not extreme heat. And so um, another graph, and I'd be happy to send that along, shows at which temperature threshold you get above where you start to see a rapid increase in hospitalizations. And that threshold is, is lower in our northern states because the buildings, the infrastructure simply aren't uh, designed for extreme heat. I think also that's where we saw in Texas when they did have that cold snap, they weren't designed for extreme cold either. So you get to this idea of risk and vulnerability. When uh, you presented the data on the number of deaths from extreme heat, um, I was wondering, is that death just, is that death from increased ambient heat, or does that include the disruption of weather patterns caused by climate change and, and a warming ocean and so forth that result in greater, more violent storms, uh, or is it just the ambient heat? Yeah, so that would just be the, the ambient heat is as well as humidity, which together is that heat index of how we experience that. And so, yes, just focusing on heat, not looking at the increased um, health risks and death that are coming from more extreme weather, from wildfires, hurricanes, um, and other extreme events. So um, that's only, again, just showing one slice of the problem right now. Thank you for what you've shared. I wanted to ask you if you could say more about the Evangelical Environmental Network because I don't know if that's a local group, but I'm from, I'm living in South Carolina, so I didn't know if you could mention a group that would be, if this is a local group, what would be my group? Absolutely, thank you. So we are, the Evangelical Environmental Network is a, is a national organization. Um, we just celebrated our 30th anniversary and um, have, uh, uh, 
been involved with both, uh, we're an education and advocacy organization, so we'd be very happy to connect and see how we can resource you in South Carolina, as well as um, if you've got friends or family in other states you think would be interested, we'd love to connect and see how we can, um, not only uh, I can help here locally, as based in DC, but we've got resources across the country. Dr. Mormon, thank you for that presentation. Uh, I think you're preaching to the choir here, so that's, that's a good thing. But the frustration so many of us feel is around the polarization uh, in this country, geographically and politically and otherwise, and religiously. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about how your outreach in the evangelical community is the same as different as making progress uh, more cause for hope, please. Thank you. That's a great question. And again, I think one of the biggest challenges that we face in our day is polarization. And what I see is that um, when we come together around this topic, around wanting, uh, wanting clean air, clean water, and a safe climate, um, stewarding God's creation well, that actually is something that has the potential to bring folks together. And um, what I, we have seen over the past several decades, and I'll give you just candidly, um, I'm seeing an inflection point, especially within my own evangelical community. Um, I see folks who are hungry to know what's the truth. And the challenge is, is hearing, well, I've got one person that I trust over here or, or folks who are saying, no, this isn't a problem, this is a hoax. And then I've got some, I've got scientists and other folks who are saying, no, this is the biggest problem that we face today. Who can I trust? And that's where Ian comes in to help bridge that gap. Um, and again, starting with as we have today, centralizing it in scripture and our commonality in Christ and our calling as children of God to steward God's creation well and protect all of his people, but then to help bring to bear that this is something that's impacting people that we love today. And so with that message, especially with focusing on health, um, as well as the intersection with pollution, we have seen incredible uh, reception amongst our evangelical community, including um, just last year, I was part of um, the re-release of a climate report and its intersection with poverty across the world and here at home from the National Association of Evangelicals. We've got different evangelical denominations across, um, uh, uh, across the board and across the country who are having similar conversations just like yourself. They're meeting together to say, what can we do? And so we're truly, I believe we're at this inflection point. There's still a lot of work to be done, but just in terms of um, hope, I see there's a lot of hope out there, um, but still with a lot of hard work that we need to do. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. I was pleasantly surprised to see some good news slides at the end and curious to know more about where we're going. It looks like we're on target to go somewhere with our reduction of, um, you know, on, on the path towards climate change, but have we agreed as a country or a, a world about where we're going? Yeah, and so that, I think you've really nailed it. Um, the thing is, is we've got the tools and technology to address this problem. We just have to decide to work together to get it done. And so that's why I've been heartened over the last three years. I've gotten to say, 
each successive year, we've just passed the most historic piece of climate and clean energy legislation, and then say it again of the next piece just blowing it out of the water. And so um, that gives me a lot of heart. But again, one, the U.S., we've got to implement those things. And so especially that's going to happen here at the local level. Uh, in our states and our communities to make that happen. And so that's why continuing to act and push for those gains is really important. But then also we have to act as a global society. I think it's really important for the U.S. to take the lead on that because we are responsible historically for the greatest emissions. And so we should be at the front leading and helping the rest of the global community um, put in place those innovations so that they can do it too, while also um, making sure that nobody's left behind. And so there is a lot of work to be done, but I think it's really important to celebrate the wins as they come along, um, because otherwise we can just feel so disheartened that can lead us to inaction. Um, and again, I'm really heartened to see each and every one of you here learning about this and uh, as a community um, taking part in that action. Thank you. Yeah. One, one okay. Thank you so much. I'm a teacher, and I work with the immigrant population in Arlington, Virginia. And I was really shocked, um, actually disheartened, by seeing just the real disparity in DC. Um, I'm really concerned about development um, and developers, and the kind of environmental impact that's having, and the equity for our immigrant community, because a lot of those facilities in which they're living are indeed these heat traps. Um, and I'm trying to find more ways to be active, both here in DC and in um, Arlington, this area, with the immigrant community in particular. I'll just give a really quick response. Um, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, it came with an infusion for community and urban tree planting, and specifically towards um, low income and community of colors to reverse, <laughs> to correct what we've seen on that map. And so I'm really excited to say Casey Trees here in town um, got a, a big grant for that. And so um, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to help locally. <laughs> change what it looks like on that map. And again, we've got to make sure that we do it equitably. And so again, each and every one of you saying, telling our, our local DC government, as well as um, across the board, that this is something that we value, that we want to see, it makes a difference. So we've got to keep them accountable for actually delivering on that. Thank you again very, very much, Dr. Mormon, uh, for this presentation, and, um, and thank you all for your questions and for coming, and I look forward to seeing you all for a further conversation next Sunday's forum. Um, but thank you again very much, and I think we need to start moving out <laughs> for the next service. <laughs>